Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. My name is Edward Pickering. I'm the editor of Ruler magazine, and this is Ruler Conversations. We're going to talk today about the new edition of the magazine, number 116, The Mind Issue, which is available to buy now. Go to ruler.cc and hit the subscribe button. I'm joined today by James Start, Ruler's resident photojournalist. James has been writing about and taking photographs of bike racing for many, many years, in between the real business of playing guitar in a Parisian funk collective. James has rushed back from Spain to join us for this recording. So James, where were you? What exactly were you doing in Spain? And why is my inbox full of pictures of Peter Sagan flexing his muscles? <laughs> uh, well, I was down there like almost every self-respecting cyclist. Uh, I was down in Calpe, down on the southern Mediterranean coast. And I mean, it was just every team. And I mean, I saw so many riders there. It, was, it wasn't even funny that that region is just given over to professional cycling at this time of year. But I was down specifically for Total Energies and Peter Sagan, who I've collaborated with the last uh, four seasons. And so this is the, the December camp is the camp where guys, you know, they get to know each other sometimes for the first time and then do a lot of base miles, a lot of four and a half, five hour rides not much intensity. Then what I was there for was a lot of the uh, official stuff, the team pictures and all. So we were doing the team pictures for each individual rider. I was following them on training every day, uh, hanging out with them at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So it was a lot of fun being actually, you know, really embedded in the team. And it's a team I've seen and liked for a long time. And seen I've seen them come around and really grow. Obviously, a year ago, they really grew by hiring Peter Sagan, and not to mention several of his top teammates, and uh, most faithful teammates and uh, staff. And this time a year ago, you know, the mechanics were still trying to find a common language that they could discuss, like how to build these bikes with all kinds of things. Nepisagan and us and their team were still trying to like, they were with their phrase books in French, trying to figure out how to say, you know, where is this and where is that? As international as, as the Peloton is, there's still sometimes some linguistic issues. And this year, a year later, it was instead of trying to figure out what words to say or just how to describe something, they were sharing common jokes and there was a lot of camaraderie and, you know, and they obviously did a tremendous job integrating this year. We saw that in the results column. Obviously, Sagan didn't have his best year with, you know, he had two victories, but the team had 15 victories, which is good by any standards with a whole bunch of different riders and the whole Sagan element, all his teammates really took the team up to another level, a lot more confidence. You know, I see that. So I see this as, a year down the line is a much more mature team than it was just 12 months ago. It was interesting. 
what is the team for these days? I mean, they've got a really long and interesting heritage. You know, they go all the way back to the Brioche La Boulangère back in the early 2000s. They went through the Europe car years, which probably their most famous year with Thomas Vaucler and Pierre Hollande when he was winning stage, mountain stage of the Tour and coming the top 10. And the team seemed to have a very specific and very French identity then. What's the team for these days, in your opinion? It's actually, you know, for what it was. I mean, Jean-Rédé Bernardo, he's the uh, longtime manager, the founder of the team. And he is a bike racer's bike racer. And he is all about attacking, making things happen, trying to take what you've got and make the best of it. Don't wait around. Don't wait around and sit in the pack and hang on until you get dropped or something. Just go out there and try to make a day of it. They, they, you know, they're always a team that's in the breakaway, always a team that's in the fight. And obviously with Sagan, you know, who's a very, you know, aggressive rider and a very charismatic rider, they're hoping to continue in that format. Obviously, Sagan was slowed down last year with got COVID again at the beginning of the season and was really struggling to find his form. But, you know, the hope is that him and Anthony Tourgis can really start clicking together. Now, Tourgis, don't forget, got second in Milan San Remo. This guy, you know, he's got a lot of points. He's got more points than Peter Sagan. He doesn't have the big wins that Peter Sagan has, but he's got a lot. Of, he's always in the mix. And, you know, the idea was when he came on board, Sagan came on board, was that they really can start to work off of each other and start playoff as each other and open up opportunities for each other. And so I think they're hoping to finally hit their stride this year now that Sagan is is back. And Peter is uh, looking actually much better than he was a year ago. A couple of teammates said, you know, well, Sagan's definitely stronger than he was this time last year. And so, you know, it'll be interesting to see where we go with that. And... It's a team that sometimes looks like it's quite a funny mishmash of riders these days. It, like I said, it used to be very French in its identity. But you know, when you look at their roster, they've got Bosenhagen, Sagan, Mathieu Burgodeau, who seems to be up-and-coming French baroudeur, uh, Julien Simon, who is not, obviously not a Tour de France bunch sprint stage winner, but he's the kind of guy who picks up points in all the French races and wins little sprints and races like the Haute-Varre, and Alexis Wiermont. So it's an eclectic mix, isn't it? Yeah, well, they want they want to have guys that can be in the mix in any kind of race. You know, what they're missing, perhaps, is a real pure climber, obviously. But Guillermo is a very punchy climber and, uh, you know, won a stage in the Dauphiné, had the yellow jersey there for a while. Probably more of a classics-oriented team than they were in the past, classics, punchy stages, things like that. But their thing is to basically make sure they can be in the mix in just about any scenario. And, you know, they were a lot more. With Sagan alone, they were in the top five and how many sprints in the tour. I mean, obviously he would like to be winning them, but he still was not at 100% at the Tour de France. And he's still popping out fourth place, third place, fifth place finishes all day long. And then again, you know, Anthony Tourgis, I mean, he is a really strong finishing rider. If you get second in Milan Remo, that doesn't come easy. So a real talent there. And I, I still think that he's got the, the best years ahead of him. So it's going to be interesting, but very much an all-around team, classics team, a punchy team, aggressive team. Um, and they hope to take that to another level. So we'll see. But um, it's exciting to see. I like the team. I've always have. It's a really nice family-run kind of team. They have the best service course I've ever seen. It's in this old manor house out in the Vendée. I mean, the service course, the guys are working the old stables. I mean, it's not some industrial zone like most of the teams, right? When I went there a couple of years ago, I mean, one of the staff members went and got a big steak and threw it over the open pit in the chimney for a fireplace. Okay, it's time to eat. And a couple of the riders were actually staying upstairs and they came down for lunch. You know, I mean, it's just a, a wonderful spirit on that team. That's Bernardo's uh, spirit and Bernardo's baby. And they're a lot of fun to be around. They're a lot of nice guys. You know, I mean, Daniel Oss, I've known for years. I mean, who doesn't want to be on a team with Daniel Oss? He's so much fun and he's so strong. Bodnar, I mean, he you don't see it. 
But those guys are saying, man, Bodnar helped us out so much because like guys like Pierre Latour, good rider on the climb, good TT rider. But, you know, how many times will he be in a, a windy crosswind stage against Ineos and Jumbo and, and all these guys? And they'd just be totally buried. Well, Bodnar can ride the wind. And I, I remember the Tour of Provence last year. Pierre was like, wow, I've never had somebody like Bodnar to chaperone me through those winds and stay up front all day. He would have been off the back in like the fourth echelon. All of a sudden, he's finishing in the top group. So that whole fusion, it wasn't immediately evident, but it's a much better team than it was a few years ago, a year ago even. It's been nice to watch, and let's hope they get a big win that really marks it for him this year. Great. While you are in Spain, I was attending the Rula annual strategy meetings and, importantly, office party. I, I heard there was some karaoke going down there. I did not make it to the karaoke, but videos do exist. <laughs> Hopefully they will stay on Slack. And apart from that, I've also I met a guy for the next edition magazine for a future future edition, interviewed a Bo Markson, uh, who I met in London. He is on Instagram as dadbod underscore cyclist. And he's an individual who's suffered from you know, body dysmorphia and he's working hard to make cycling a more inclusive space. And I'd urge anyone to go and have a look at his Instagram handle, dadbod underscore cyclist. And we sat there, the interview lasted three hours and I hardly talked. He was such an interesting interview. That's going to be in the next issue of Ruler. But for the moment, we're going to talk about Ruler 116, which is the mind issue, um, which is out now. So I wanted to go at this magazine, when we were thinking about what to put in it, I wanted to go at it in two ways. And there's, first of all, road racing, which is obviously the DNA of the magazine, and psychology, but also cycling's wider relationship with our brains and minds. What I like about road racing, James, is that it's not just a test of pure physical strength. It is a test of the mind and tactics as well. And uh, I'm going to tell you a, a small anecdote about life in the Pickering household, which I think best illustrates this concept. So when we have a jam jar, stay with me here, James. When we have a jam jar um, where the lid is stuck, my modus operandi in these scenarios is to strain and try and use brute force to get the jam jar lid off the jam jar. And it's very hard to do that because you're working against a vacuum and the laws of physics dictate that a vacuum is very strong. So You know, I sweat and strain and grunt and groan and swear and I can't open the jam jar. And the way Mrs P, my wife, opens jam jars is just by getting a knife and sticking it up the seal to break the seal and break the vacuum and then simply unscrew the jam jar leg. What has this got to do with bicycle road racing? Well, it's that brute force doesn't win you bike races. Brute force is the the price of entry, um, but it is not by any way, the way that bike racing is dictated. And I actually think it is what is unique and fascinating about bike racing. I don't really watch marathons. I find marathons kind of interesting conceptually, but to watch a marathon, you watch the fastest guy win, the second fastest guy come second, and the third fastest guy come third, etc. And though I can watch it and I can get something out of it, I don't find it intriguing or surprising or absorbing in the same way that I do a bike race. And I, I just love the fact that, for example, in, in this year's Tour de France, my contention is that the physically strongest guy in the race was marginally Tadej Pogacar and almost the same strength, Jonas Vingegaard. It, it was that close that it might have been slightly the other way, but they were virtually the same strength. 
one might have been a little bit stronger than the other. But Vingegaard gave Pogacar a three-minute beating in the Tour de France. And that's because Pogacar rode with his legs and his heart and Vingegaard rode with his head. In the first week of the race, you remember, Pogacar spent the whole race attacking, gained virtually nothing from that. Vingegaard and Jumbo Visma attacked him, got inside his head and kind of provoked him into being too aggressive in the Alpine stage to the Col du Granot. And that was that three-minute gap. And I, I I really don't think Pogacar was any weaker than Vingegaard, but that was the result of the race. And that's that's what I love about bike racing. But cycling's not just about bike racing. What I found with cycling is that it broadens the mind. It is a, both a sport and activity which takes you places. You, you, you learn about geography, history, culture, politics, all the things I love about life. Bike riding takes us places and it also broadens our minds. And lastly, I think I would urge people to remember that cycling is not therapy and you can't prescribe it as therapy. But I found that cycling is excellent for my own sense of equilibrium and mental health because it it quietens the mind. When I go cycling, I am engaged in my surroundings and I do find them beautiful or interesting, but I also stop thinking about stuff, you know, the stuff that work and life and busyness. And it I find bike rides quieten the mind as well. And that's what I wanted to explore in this edition of Rouleur. Or sometimes the bike ride can help us sort things, you know, you you, you will go out and think about the work or the family thing, and you come back with a better perspective on it. I agree very much. I, I actually got into cycling through marathon running. The last race I raced was a New York City marathon, but my body said no. And I just kept breaking down. And finally, I had to find a new sport and cycling was it. And instantly, I understood that it was a very different game. It wasn't just another endurance sport about legs and lungs. I mean, there was so many so many things that take, you know, all the tactics and everything that you had to take into to consideration. And this year's Tour de France was absolutely one of the great tactical races. And it was just tremendous to see. And there's so many, uh, Philippe Gilbert went off on that long solo to win Flanders. I mean, he knew, he was like thinking, what are the guys behind me thinking? And he's like, if I got 30 seconds, that might not seem like much. That means somebody's got to sacrifice themselves to bridge that gap. I'm in the driver's seat, you know. Same thing with Sagan when he won uh, Roubaix. He went off. He was not the strongest rider. It was not the strongest team. He went off, attacked everybody when they weren't thinking about him. All of a sudden, everybody's got to start sacrificing their team to try to chase him down. And what happened? He won the race. And that's using your head. That's using your legs. Obviously, these guys are all super strong to be in that position. But you have to be a lot more than that, as you just said. And it's been interesting. And I, I had a lot of fun. When you first came up with the issue of the mind, I was like, oh, geez, what am I going to do with this, right? And I think came up with, what, five, six features and had a great time with all of them. I mean, a lot of really great diversity in this issue. I said before that, you know, as a magazine editor, I can't have favourite features because it's like having favourite children. I'd love them all equally. But when the magazine comes back to me from Enrique, our super talented art director, who is a genius, sometimes it's just some features really sing from the page because the way he's worked with the material he's got, but also the material he's given in the first place. And the one that really struck me was the Lachlan Morton interview mm. that you did. And the main, the main reason being, it wasn't so much Lachlan Morton that really grabbed me, although he's a fascinating guy. Um, it was the, the headline, the opening spread and the photograph you took of him. The headline is Afternoon Tea with Lachlan Morton. 
um, with a photograph of him at afternoon tea in London. So what happened there, James? We don't normally take <laughs> cyclists for afternoon tea. This is two months running. I've got your most favorite child vote. Uh, the last one was Diagonal David that we did with our colleague Richard Abraham, and I photographed for that one. And that was really a rich story that I could only have dreamed of publishing and, and happened to finally be published in Rouleur. And this one was, uh, well, this was, you know, actually curated content, but they said, you know, we got this thing with physics, so we'd just like to do a feature on who is Lachlan Morton. And so I said, well, I can do that. And so we were in contact, and I said, Lachlan, you're going to be in London for Wooder Live, so we're going to meet the day before. And I said, anything in London you'd like to do, you know? I mean, what do you like to do? And, like, music? Uh, You want to walk around Camden? Uh, I don't know, you know? I had no idea. So he said, what I've always wanted to do in London was go to high tea. And I thought that sounded so proper, and I guess it, it was. Although I guess you guys call it afternoon tea, right? But Lachlan, he comes from another continent, another place. He calls it high tea. And I think that's just royal. I loved it. So I, so I said, okay, well, let's do that. You know, I'll take you to high tea. And so we went and had a great time with it. And he said, would you like a champagne? And Lachlan said, sure. I said, well, bring on the champagne and all the sandwiches and everything that goes along with it. You know, we just started talking. At first, I was like, so Lachlan, um, high tea. I mean, you did the you did the old tour to France. You probably didn't have a real meal for a month. You slept the whole month in a tent, and yet you like you want something that is sort of the epitome of that when you come to London. He's like, yeah, I just saw, I heard about it one day. It looked amazing. I always wanted to do it, and it was a great way to sit down and relax and just talk to Lachlan about a ton of things. You know, about his initiative into all kinds of alternative types of cycling, his uh, struggles with. The traditional classic road racing scene, even though, you know, he's a tremendously talented rider. He went, you know, as a junior, won some of the biggest stage races for juniors, the ones that, you know, the, the great riders win. So obviously, huge engine has what it takes to be a pro tour rider, but just said, admittedly, didn't have the head for it. And more and more, he's realized that he's uh, finding just a lot more satisfaction in other what kinds of cycling. And he's a real iconoclast, and he's really... No rider has taken cycling into such new places as he has in recent history. And it's, it's actually exciting. You know, obviously it was the all tour, but then the guy sees uh, the war in Ukraine breaking out and uh, one of his teammates is from Ukraine and he's just like really upset about this. And he said, what can I do? And he's like, he gets on Google and said, how far is it from my home to Ukraine, the border? Oh, about a thousand kilometers, I think he said it was. And he said, ah. I can do that. It's not going to be easy, but I can do it. And he set it up and set off and rode to the border. And then people were like cheering him on. The crowds were actually getting bigger as he got closer to the border. And he met tons of people along the way. And then he was in contact with the uh, Ukraine Federation, which had a bunch of young cyclists being housed up in, in Poland. And later in the year, he went back just recently and took a whole bunch of bikes to them. And he's just using cycling in so many different ways because, well, as we say, you know, bicycles can change lives. Did you get the impression that he's much happier outside the world tour and doing what he's doing. Absolutely. He's having a lot of fun. He's uh, cycling on his own terms. He's uh, very fortunate to have a team that backs him on this. And you have to give credit to Jonathan Waters, the the longtime uh, director of the EF team, who really understood the potential of all these different kinds of cycling challenges. Nobody came out of COVID as well as Lachlan Morton did. You know, he's doing all these these crazy rides, setting records, the Everest record. And he became the center of attraction for a year, you know, and just took cycling to a different place, gave people something to still cheer about, even though there were no races happening. Today, cycling has changed so much that somebody like Lachlan 
who maybe 10 years ago would have just been out of a contract is now, you know, still has a pro contract is still representing the team. And actually, I mean, that all tour got a lot more press than a lot of the tour de France did in the month of July last year. I know covers of magazines in the month of July last year did not have the tour de France on it. They had a lot more on it. How big is that? I think he is a true iconoclast and, um, and he's very fortunate to be in the world of cycling today and not 10, 15, 20 years ago. But he understands that and he's making the most of it. Back in the world tour, we've also got interviews with Peter Sagan and Mark Cavendish in the magazine. You interviewed Peter Sagan and Amy Seji, a freelance writer and contributor, attended the LeBlanc camp in Ibiza to interview Mark Cavendish. And I, I, it sounds like the trip of a lifetime. I think they had members of the Chemical Brothers there. There was a, a, a DJ set by Pete Tong. I think they stopped for lemonade refreshments made from lemons at Calvin Harris's lemon farm, believe it or not. So that's Cavendish and Sagan. Let's talk about those two riders, because unlike Morton, they've thrived in the world tour, both in their different ways. And I think it's ironic we've got them in the magazine together, because they maybe they don't get on so well on a personal level but you know they both found extreme success Cavendish famously his physical attributes are not particularly special compared to other world tour riders he's obviously very physically gifted as a professional athlete um, with his longevity but his numbers are not outstanding he doesn't put out the big numbers that other sprinters do according to his own testimony however I would say his mental strength is what's made the difference. And that's what's won him, let alone 34 Tour de France stage wins with perhaps more to come. And it's his focus and aggression in a race and also his organisational skills and his search for gains and tactical gains and strategic gains that have made him as successful as he is. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I know Mark pretty well, known him for a long time. And I'll never forget the first time I sat down with him. It was like 2008, I would say. Maybe it was 2009. Still back at the HTC. And I was the last interview. I was like, oh, geez, I don't know if I want to get this or not. But by the time he sat down, he started to finally relax. He wasn't stressed out about all the interviews he still had to do. And really started to open up. A really thoughtful, obviously very sensitive person. And yet mentally hard as nails, right? I mean, he gets in that last kilometer of a sprint and... It's hard to beat. He's hard to beat when he's on. He's just so hungry and then so mentally tough because obviously he really struggles in the mountains even more with age. And yet he always makes it in the time zone. So he's a really tough, tough, tough rider. And yet he's obviously very emotional. But yeah, all the things you said are true. I mean, he really analyzes everything looking for those marginal gains. I mean, he really studies the final two, three kilometers before every stage, really knows what's going on, what turn to be in, what turn not to be in, where to be on the inside, where to be on the outside. And he's often been able to put together very good sprint teams, but that's part of the game. I mean, you you choose to do that or you don't, and you have uh, team backing, the teams, the people that believe in you, and you have the will to do it, and he's, he's done that. And he's a pretty special rider. I mean, he's the greatest sprinter of all time, hands down. You know, one problem with cycling is we're all fans, but we get so focused on the race at hand and the latest victory. And when you're winning, you're boiling water hot. And, and as soon as you're not, you're not. And there's a certain kind of fan that tends to forget, tends to lack the historical perspective to remember this. And a great champion is always a great champion, not just because he won today or tomorrow or yesterday. It's because a 
of what he's done. You know, Peter Simon's always going to be a great champion. Mark Cavendish is always going to be a great champion. And Cavendish has been quite open about his own struggles with mental health and depression in the past as well. I mean, you know, you assume he's winning races, he's a professional athlete, life is good, right? But professionals can face the same stresses, pressures, ups and downs as the rest of us. Yeah. Well, it was interesting. That actually made me think about Lachlan Morton because at one point he says, I was finally made it as a pro and he was at some race where he got a really good result. I don't think he won, but he, you know, he was like top three on some big world tour stage or something. And at night he was home. He said he was crying in the shower. I think he's like, he was not a happy person. And he was saying, is this what it is? This is my life's dream. And I'm yet I've had one of my best days ever on a bike and it's not bringing me satisfaction. It's a complicated game. And these guys, they give their lives to the sport. They often give up an education. They don't have a classic childhood. And all of a sudden, they're, you know, the best ones are hit with fame so early on. They're not really equipped with maturity to have that. And it takes time and it can be a real struggle for some of these guys. And Sagan and I talked about that actually in our interview. And he said, you know, if I had advice to give to some of these young guys, it would be that, you know, because dealing with fame. And he said there was times where he was really struggling with it. And he said, there was times I just didn't want to leave my room. I didn't want to go down for dinner. I didn't want to deal with people anymore. I was so overwhelmed with all of the solicitation, all of the admiration and everything. I just wanted to, you know, chill. And he said, it took me some time. He doesn't have a spare second. He goes to a bike race. Getting in the race is actually the easy part. He's got interviews. He's got sponsor demands. I have never been at a day. I've followed Peter Sagan from 8 in the morning to 10 o'clock at night on many occasions. And it's very hard to get five minutes with the guy. And it's not arrogance. His planning, his calendar is booked. I'm interrupting this podcast to remind all listeners to subscribe to Rouleur. Rouleur is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. We feature the work of the best writers in cycling, along with the very best photography, elegantly laid out and printed on high-quality paper. Our deep dives into road racing, gravel, adventure cycling and life on two wheels are immersive, independent, agenda-setting and thought-provoking. We aim to educate, entertain, inform and inspire. Our latest magazine, out now, is Ruler 116, The Mind Issue. We all know that cycling broadens the mind. It takes us to new places and allows us to revisit familiar ones. And bike riding time is excellent thinking time. Cycling is a physical pursuit. Pedal, breathe and repeat. But the physical activity is enriched and made more meaningful by how it relates to what goes on inside our heads. Ruler 116 features exclusive interviews with two legends of road racing, Mark Cavendish and Peter Sagan. Cavendish is the joint record holder for Tour de France stage wins and has been open in the past about his struggles with mental health. Sagan is a three-time world champion and Paris-Roubaix and Tour of Flanders winner. Both have had to work out how to deal with the consequences of fame and success. Also featured in Rouleau 116, the role of confidence in world tour cycling, how to plan a world hour record, how to support people in cycling who are susceptible to eating disorders, riding in the Dolomites and Spanish Badlands, plus interviews with Taylor Finney, Veronica Ewers and Safia Al-Sayeg. And also, High Tea with Lachlan Morton. Rulo 116 is available now. To support our journalism and receive a magazine every six weeks, please subscribe. Go to ruler.cc, hit the subscribe button and enter the code PODCAST15. That's PODCAST15 
to get 15% off our regular subscription price. And now, back to the show. Outside the World Tour now, one of the things I've really enjoyed working on Rula is the fact that there's a much broader range of subject matter and we don't just talk to professional cyclists. We talk to any connection with life on two wheels. Anybody with any connection with, with cycling is fair game for us. And Cervelo put me in touch with a hybrid athlete called Fergus Crawley, who I interviewed a few weeks ago for, for this magazine. And I really enjoy interviews that aren't with professional cyclists. It's been liberating and fascinating and inspiring to talk to athletes outside the world tour. Um, so Fergus, he's a brand ambassador for Cervelo. He's a mental health advocate. He's a hybrid athlete and he's not a professional international level athlete. He's got a background in powerlifting. Um, he does triathlons, long runs, long bike rides. He used to play rugby. Um, very, very physical oriented guy, but has also experienced episodes of severe depression. I should put a trigger warning on this, but he did try to take his own life a few years ago and through self-help and support and providence he got himself back on track and he now does endurance events and raises money for the Movember charity so I'm going to play a short extract from my interview with Fergus which hopefully explains more about what he's doing. So for context I suffer from depression from 2014 to 2016 I kept completely quiet and silent about it as a result of my perception of masculinity and who I was as a person to the point where I was paralyzed with fear of being exposed as feeling the way that I did so that left me feeling so isolated that I attempted suicide in May of 2016 I've since obviously recovered from that come around and have a much more refined perspective of my mental health and that very perception of masculinity and who I am as a person that led me there in the first place so one thing I want to make crystal clear is that I very much view exercise as a coping mechanism, but not a replacement for the work that needs done to understand the thing you're trying to cope with in the first place. So a phrase that makes me, it doesn't make me cringe, it's just something I want to actively discourage, is the gym is my therapy. Cycling is my therapy. Running is my therapy. No, running is your way of getting through the week to provide you with the opportunity to access therapy if that's something that is needed. We're getting to the end of this podcast, James, but I just wanted to rattle through a few of the other features in the mag and talk to you about them. We got an interview by our former editor, Andy McGrath, with Veronica Ewers, who rides for EF Tibco, the women's team. Anybody who is thinking that they've left things too late should find inspiration from Veronica Ewers because she only discovered cycling in her mid-20s. She'd played soccer college in the states and done a bit of running i think but she discovered cycling that was in her mid-20s maybe three years ago um and this year she finished in the top 10 of the tour de france femme itzulia tour de romandie the women's tour might have left a couple off i mean she really is an extraordinarily talented cyclist who is in her first year in the world tour as a as a full-time cyclist so that was a fascinating interview rachel jerry our staff writer did a piece on disordered eating which is it's a common thing among cyclists i think especially competitive cyclists because it's a fact of the sports that we have to be very cognizant of the lighter you are the faster you ride up hills and that's an important part of the sport but really really important to have ownership of your relationship 
with food and your weight and the way you fuel yourself because it's far too easy to take it too far. There have also been way too many team managers and people in the world tour and well in, in professional cycling in the past who have pushed and pushed athletes to lose weight so that it becomes an issue and that's that's not healthy. So Rachel's done a really sensitive and really important piece tackling these issues. Tell us about Henri Cartier-Bresson, James, who is the subject of this magazine's art cycle. Cartier-Bresson was you know, one of the great photographers of the 20th century, considered by many the pioneer of reportage and street photography. His visual vocabulary was so far ahead of so many others. And he had this one picture, black and white picture, from the south of France, this little village in the south of France back in the 30s. And he took of this cobbled descent, looking down from a spiral staircase into this cobbled descent, and just at the right moment, there's the shadow of a cyclist that blows through it in blur. And you don't really see the cyclist. I couldn't tell you what gear the cyclist is riding or what kind of bike he's riding. It looked like a some kind of a racing bike. I think the handlebars were fairly low, things like that. But it was not a racing cyclist, just a, a cyclist. But it's considered one of the great compositions of, of photography and really incarnated his whole spirit or the, what he called the decisive moment of how he puts together pictures and how the frame of a camera is sort of his stage. And then he, you know, composes and waits for the right moment to come and then clicks. And this was really one of those things. And it happened to be that right moment came when a bicycle came through. That's where I want to go with my passions for cycling and photography. I want to hopefully someday take bicycling pictures of cycling that are not just about the sport. And he gave me real inspiration for that. And so I kind of break down the picture about why it's significant about his decisive moment and how the bicycle played an integral role in that and also about how it played an integral role in, in my own creative uh, pursuits. We've also got features about the role of confidence in the World Tour, interview and shoot with Taylor Finney. We've got an interview with the cycling journalist Rupert Guinness. He's a cycling journalist turned ultra-cyclist who's experienced his own challenges with, with mental health and he's been very open and honest about that. We've got an interview with Safia Al-Sayeg, who's the first female cyclist from the UAE to take part in the World Championships this year. Emilio Previtali, the editor of Rulo Italia, has written a beautiful piece about cycling in the Dolomites and how that relates to the Japanese concept of ikigai, which is a kind of the central focus of your life. And we've also got a feature about Edugast, the tyre company. A piece about tyres is always going to be quite hard to make interesting. Nevertheless, Charlie came back with an absolute cracker and answers the question in two different places. What does the bicycle tyre industry have to do with the fetish industry? And if you want to find out what that is, I mean, you're a man of the world, James, but if our readers want to find out what this is, they're going to have to read the magazine. So all that remains for me to say is thank you, James, for your time today and your efforts in putting the magazine together and to wish all the readers and subscribers and followers of Ruler a very Merry Christmas. I hope you have fun reading the uh, magazine for anybody who gets a chance to pick it up. And I do wish you all a uh, happy holidays as well. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.